Welcome to the See Me Now special edition podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, with my co-host, David Ludlam. Today, we have Colorado Mesa University Professor of Sociology, Dr. Wilhelm. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And so what, how, how long have you been here? You, you said a, a thousand years, I think, before we started. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like that. I have been here for 20 years. Um, so it was Mesa State College when I started. And I believe at the time there were about 4,500 students. And pretty much the whole campus was between where the University Center is now and Houston. So it has it has changed quite a bit since I've been here. <laughs> What's it, what's it been like to be here for that growth and see the university go from, you know, small to, to the medium size it is now? It's just been crazy to watch. I mean, and it, most of it happened quickly or it feels like it happened over a, a pretty short number of years. I remember coming back and I don't remember what year it was, but I remember, you know, leaving in May and not really coming back onto campus for most of the summer um, and then coming back toward the end of summer and people would ask me where something is. And I'm like, yeah, I've worked here for 12 years. I have no idea where I am at the moment. It was, I mean, it just changed so quickly. It has changed a lot. I, I understand that just like the campus has evolved, your teaching has evolved. And you were saying before the show that you're incorporating kindness into how you teach. Can you extrapolate on on what that is and how you've come across it? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's something I've been thinking about for a long time, and I think I've been incorporating it without really knowing I was incorporating it for a long time. My identity as a teacher is very much um, interpersonal relationships with students and, and helping them be their best. I When I was in graduate school, I was in a research one institution, and everybody was really being groomed to take on research positions. Um, big university positions. And I knew pretty early on that that wasn't what I wanted to do. I really wanted to teach students. And I wanted to teach students who were, you know, what I think of as as regular, quote unquote, regular people, not like a small elite college. Um, and so I came to Mesa State College very intentionally to to teach the kind of population that we have here. And the reality is that our students are not, they're not there are more traditional students than there used to be, that 18 to 22 age and not a family, not kids. But that's not the reality of most of our students' life. And so really what I'm embracing right now is called the Pedagogy of Kindness. Um, it's Kate Denials. And it has to do with social justice. It has to do with making sure that students who are not traditional 18 to 22-year-olds supporting by their parents' students get a fair shake and what that means, that social justice is one component. The other two components are believing in students. And for me, that is challenging them, but making them understand that I really believe in them, that I believe they can meet the challenge, even if it's something they haven't done before. Um, I push students pretty hard. I think most of my students would tell you that. Um, and then the other piece of it is believing students. The reality is, and especially in COVID, students need some assistance and they need some space. They have kids who are maybe at home because of COVID and, and they need an extension. And, you know, normally the way that academics have done things is to sort of create hoops to jump through, right? You know, so you have to prove to me that something is going on and you need a little bit of space. 
But that can be really hard for students who are non-traditional in some way. Um, they don't necessarily want to share the personal aspects of their life. And so this semester especially, I have been really open to just giving people um, that space. And I have gotten emails from students that are just so grateful. Um, and, and so far, I have not been taken advantage of to my knowledge. Um, but even if I do, I've kind of decided that if a student needs something, I'd rather risk giving a student who really doesn't need it some sort of advantage than I would kind of cutting off a student who really does need assistance. And you're talking about offering more time or extension with certain assignments maybe, or um, just being a little more lenient in, in, in the grading process, perhaps? Not, not really the grading process, but the, the giving people more time to do things. And really, it's, it's a part of the believing in students. I really want them to do their very best work. And if they need another 48 hours, you know, it, that, that seems, it seems like they will get a better education that way. Um, within reason, of course, because I have to keep some semblance of control over my schedule. <laughs> and so the kindness is not, doesn't have anything to do with the coursework. It's an ethos that you bring to the classroom, no matter what the coursework is. But what kind of coursework are you teaching? What classes are you covering this semester? I am teaching this semester, I am teaching um, family at both the lower division level and the upper division level and gender at the upper division level. I should say, too, I want to give Dr. Sarah Swedberg in history a shout out because she brought the pedagogy of kindness to my attention. What is family? What is family? That's a big <laughs> question. That's something that we talk about in the class, right? How do we define family? Who counts as family? So we talk about different ways of thinking about that. Most of the students define family as people they love and they include their pets and their roommates. Their pets come up all the time. Um, <laughs> I can get behind that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. I ask them to share pictures of their families. And yeah, pets are, pets are probably there more than siblings are there. Um, but we talk about that kind of amorphous definition compared to something that you could use in the census, right, to count up the number of families, legal relationships, adoption. I mean, those are more... Um, those are less amorphous definitions of family. And we talk about how the definition of families change over time. How has that changed over time? Well, in a lot of ways, the, the part that I tend to emphasize the most is actually the degree to which the role of love has become more central. The, ro the role of emotion has become more central. So if you go back, I'm just going to say 200 years to sort of pick, pick a time period, People married much more um, because of needing an economic partner um, or if they were elite, needing a political partner. So you would marry, if, if you were from a baker family, you'd marry another baker so that you could put together those businesses or farming or whatever it might be. Um, and the idea that love would be based on marriage, like you'd marry because you were in love, that was not a solid basis for a marriage at all. Um, You'd hope that love would develop over time. And when I talk to them, talk to the students about that, and they look at it from their perspective today, they're just appalled that anyone would get married for economic reasons. And they're really appalled that people would think of their kids as economic assets. Well, that, that still happens, you know, in different parts of the world today. So does, is, that, is that something you bring up? 
Yeah, yeah, we talk a lot. So I'm a sociologist, and so I focus a lot on how society is organized, both in terms of culture, which is part of what you're getting at, right? Um, How we define the family is defined by the culture in a particular place or time. Um, So our idea, even just of, you know, a nuclear family and kids, really different from a world in which clearly your extended family is, is your family. We call it extended. They would just call it family. Kelsey referenced that it still happens in other places around the world, but um, within any kind of uh, wealthy society, there's people that live in the margins. And are there still demographics in the United States where a utilitarian marriage or or the selection of a partner is still a very much a, a utilitarian exercise? I think it's not as explicit as, as it used to be. Um, I, I do think there's the reality that economics makes a difference. But I think what happens today is you see the marriage rate declining among people who are less well off financially. And so we've gotten this, we've sort of developed the system in which you're supposed to be solid in your own life. You're supposed to be economically stable and emotionally secure and, you know, mature, all that kind of good stuff. And then you find someone to marry who's also in that position. So what's happened is that marriage is actually a lot more common in the middle, upper middle class and above. If you look at people who are poor, low income, they're not getting married as much. Uh, They might live together in the hopes that they'll end up being financially stable enough to marry each other. Is is there an irony in the sense that an institution that's been um, associated with with a, a tradition maybe religious ethos is now a tool that increases stratification among the elite, the wealthy. I mean, so power couples, I guess would be the, the, the metaphor for that. But is there something strange about that in a way from a sociological standpoint? I kind of think there's an irony in everything, which maybe means it's not strange. Okay. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, It absolutely is though a, a major marriage right now is a major tool of stratification. Um, Because like you said, you have the power couples on the one side. Um, So if you have somebody who is well off financially marrying somebody else who's well off financially, you end up, you know, kind of in the stratosphere. Whereas if you've got two low income folks, even with two incomes, you might not have enough even to, you know, be comfortable paying the rent and and buying food and all those um, kind of standard things. You also mentioned that you teach gender. And I, I mean, I feel like this is always in, in, in the news and articles we read on social media, you know, uh, gender, gender and, and what it means and how it has evolved. Yeah, I, my syllabi, every time I write a syllabi, I, I kind of want to say this is like the most important class ever. Um, but it's like all of my classes. And I suspect every faculty member thinks <laughs> that way. Um, but gender is definitely one of those that there is nothing in society that doesn't have some connection to gender. Gender's making headlines um, in the issue about transgender sports, and mm-hmm. you have the bathroom debates, and you have all these sort of high-profile um, headline-making discussions about gender. How do you handle that in the classroom? I assume that even though you don't have diversity in the classroom from a gender standpoint, you still have a diversity of opinion. And do you navigate those in the classroom, or do you, do you, or do you, do you avoid those? How does that work? It's actually kind of interesting because 
at the upper division level, most of the students I have are, are kind of on the same page. Um, so there's we we talk about it and we talk about why people get concerned. We you know so we talk about the debate, but it's not necessarily a debate that's happening within the classroom. Um, at the lower division level, where it would be more likely to sort of get that response um, where there would be more of a debate. We're usually not going in quite enough depth on that particular topic just because, you know, I'm usually doing gender in like a week. And oh, okay. Yeah. There's, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but we do talk about it in upper division and we talk a lot about sort of the way that any particular debate, like the bathroom debate, can become this really big thing in a way that is beyond any evidence of what actually happens on the ground. Gotcha. What is really interesting to me um, as a sociologist and just as an observer is that gender is the class I teach that gets the fewest men. Family as well. And so... Why is that? I... I think there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is we've always, whenever we think about social status hierarchies like like gender or race, we tend to think about the people in the less powerful group as having gender or having race and the people in the more powerful or higher status group as not really having gender or having race. So women think about gender a lot more than men do. Um, I think that's changing to some degree, but in general, you tend to be more aware of barriers you face than opportunities, because opportunities tend to be less visible. Um, and and to be fair, sociology is, at least at this institution, this isn't true everywhere, predominantly women. Uh, we would love to have more men um, in our in our classes. I mean, there's there's a lot to there's a lot to offer. And is that tendency towards seeing barriers as opposed to opportunities a result of um, sort of downward pressure from culture? Or is it temperament that could be equally applicable to men or women? Or were you saying it's primarily women who, who generally face that psychological challenge? So in terms of gender, um, women tend to notice gender barriers, whereas men don't notice um, opportunities associated with their gender. But when I say that people notice barriers more than they do opportunities, that's kind of across the board. Okay. Right. So if you're in a situation where there are tons of opportunities in front of you, you tend to just kind of think that's normal. Right. Whereas if you're in a situation with a lot of barriers, it's hard not to notice when you're bumping your head into a barrier. If you've been elevated in some way by some opportunity that you just kind of assume everybody has, you just don't notice it. Gotcha. And maybe you don't even, yeah, it's, a, it's, you know, it's not seen as an opportunity. It's just, oh, here's this thing that's happening. <laughs> it's just normal life. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And is there anything that we can do to get more men in, you know, in these classes? Honestly, I think that there is a degree to which we've become very much focused on college as a college education, as an individual private good that is about being prepared for work. And that's kind of it. 
And I think when you think that way, that college is work preparation, people don't necessarily see the connection between really any liberal arts degree that isn't, you know, specifically job oriented. So any social science degree, humanities degree um, is in the same boat there that we don't really see it as connected to work. But how I think about it is, first of all, I think college should be more than just job preparation. It's four years of your life. Um, it, in its ideal, it's a transformative experience in, in tons of different ways. That's the ideal. Um, and also, there's a reality that the job market is forever changing, right? So if I look back 10 years ago, 20, well, if I look back 30 years ago, almost, when I graduated from college, there are all sorts of career opportunities today that I could not possibly have been explicitly prepared for because they didn't exist. And so what I hope that students think about is that um, really doing the liberal arts part of the degrees that are part of every degree here at, at CMU, it prepares you really broadly in your life to be a good citizen, to be um, flexible and able to go in a variety of career directions. I don't think that message often gets out there. And so I think majors like sociology and other social sciences and humanities tend to sort of suffer from that kind of narrow thinking about it. I wish there was more of the humanities in in STEM and STEAM and vice versa, because at the end of the day, it's like the fundamental question of, well, you can build a bridge really well, but it's just as important to answer the question, what's the point of building the bridge? Exactly. And there's like, there is, I wish there was more of that. So I like hearing you say that. That's a, yeah. I like that sentiment a lot. Well, and that is the point of um, essential learning is is to have that broad kind of well-rounded experience. I think it could use more emphasis. Yeah. I also get a kick out of sometimes I talk to people from graduate schools that I've, I've talked to people who are looking for students in MBA programs. I talked to someone who was, they were just starting um, a master's program in cybersecurity. And she's like, please send us social science majors, please send us sociologists, send us psychologists, send us humanities majors, because the the people who go into business school or go into cybersecurity, they know about business, but you have to know about people also, right? So for cybersecurity, they're like, we've got plenty of people who know how to use computers, but the people who are committing the crimes, those are people. <laughs> and so you need, we need people who understand people, uh, to be to go in those directions. Yeah, maybe we could talk about that for a minute. Then you know, like what what specific careers? It, you know, some someone listening right now may be thinking, "Oh, I would love to switch my major or go into that." Or you know, I have I have a daughter or a son or a grandson who might be interested in this. What kind of what kind of job opportunities are there? So what I like to say is that there are very few job opportunities that are cut off. Um, and, and I say that with the knowledge that sometimes additional schooling will be required. So for instance, I know people who graduated, uh, with a degree in sociology and became medical doctors, right? That's not the path that you generally think about. What I tell students is it's, it's kind of like what a liberal arts degree will do is it'll put you in a big room <laughs> with lots of doors that are open a little bit right? As opposed to a major that's really aimed at a particular job, right? There's one door and it is open wide. This is, 
a liberal arts degree is a little bit more complicated because you have to really think about what you get out of it. And so there's the knowledge part of it. Um, there's quantitative skills. Uh, we teach our students research methods um, and how to understand research methods. And that quantitative literacy, employers really like quantitative literacy because so many people are afraid of statistics. So many people are afraid of that, that element. Writing, making a good argument. And so what I tell my students is we'll teach you how to make a good sociological argument when you're in that room with all the doors, what you do is you take those skills and you apply them to yourself and you make a good argument for yourself for whatever's on the other side of that door. But the nice thing is, if you don't like what's on the other side of that door, you can come back <laughs> and try a different door. Um, or later on in your life, there might be doors that don't exist right now. I the like metaphor the, might break down at some point. I, they all do, I, I right? Like it. I <laughs> yeah. like that, though, because, you know, that whole you're in one room and there's, you know, all these doors open. And I can relate to that personally. You know, I think a lot of times students do graduate and they, you know, become something like a mechanical engineer, which is great. But maybe that's what they do for, you know, 50, 60 years, which is great. But then there's all this there's this other world out there where, you know, it there's a lot of value in maybe having different different careers throughout your life and, you know, learning so many different things um, that make you more of a dynamic person, perhaps. Right. right. Well, the estimates are that students in this generation are going to switch careers, not just jobs, switch careers multiple times. That's just going to be the reality of their lives. I also think of it as, you know, when I was 18, think of college as if you are traditional age, 18 to 22. When I was 18, I had never heard of sociology. And now it's my life, right? I mean, it's it's my identity. It's it's kind of it's kind of everything. I mean, it, you just kind of carry it with you in 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 all aspects of life. And the distance between eighteen and twenty two is is just not that far. And so the idea of knowing exactly what you want to do for the rest of your life, my husband had that, bless his heart, but a lot of us don't. Um, so I think that flexibility is is important. And I. How I now I'm so curious. How did you get into sociology? <laughs> what 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 led you to that? Well, my path was, um, you know, I started college and my dad said just major in business, and so I did without even thinking about it. And and this is absolutely nothing against business at all. If if that's people's path, great. It wasn't my path. Um, so I became undecided for a while, and then I was a journalism major because I. I like I, I don't know. I, I was interested in society, I think, and I didn't know quite where to go with that. So I became a journalism major. But the other thing was I was really shy. <laughs> and somewhere along the You don't the, seem shy. You obviously can. Well, see, th- and this is what I tell my students too. You can used to be shy <laughs> mm-hmm. and and overcome that. So I I realized at some point in journalism school that you had to actually talk to people. <laughs> And I was like, I am. I don't want to talk to people. Um, and by that time, I had taken some some uh, sociology classes and just really liked it. So I, I ended up graduating with a mass com and sociology degree. And the funny thing about that is, when I finished college, I had no idea what I wanted to do either. So I went on to grad school because I, I liked school. I was good at school. And uh, same thing did not occur to me that when you go to grad school, often you teach which is kind of like public speaking, which I was still petrified of. Um, But honestly, what happened, I had a really weird situation. The very first class I taught, I had walking pneumonia. 
And so my expectations for myself lowered a bit because I was like, I just need to stay upright. (laughs) That would be good. And the class was really great. And I was hooked. Um, And I learned that when you know what you're talking about and you really connect with your audience, it's fun. If you had told me that when I was 17, I would have laughed at you. (laughs) Well, so three-part question. Uh, Why were you shy? How did you overcome it? And why did you overcome it? Why was I shy? I don't know. This is a very unsociological thing to say, but I I think I was born that way. (laughs) (laughs) You're teaming up with the biology department. (laughs) I was always, I was always pretty quiet. I think I was always an observer. Um, And so kind of hanging back a little bit and observing. Um, But you were saying it's a temperament thing. You just kind of have that. I I think so. Um, I'm sure there are other reasons that I don't know if I want to get that introspective, but but I was. I yeah. mean, I was pretty quiet. Um, the reason, you know, how I over, I didn't intend to overcome it, <laughs> really. Um, and I don't know exactly when it happened. I mean, part of it was the, I kept going in these directions that required me to talk. And so I did. I do remember once in graduate school, uh, there was this kind of curmudgeon professor and I was in class with him and I never used to speak up in classes ever. And I have absolutely no idea what I said to this day, but he leaned forward as if it was important or smart or something. And I was like, <laughs> wow, that's pretty cool. Um, and you felt empowered by that. To, yeah, to I, I felt like there was some possibility here, right? Here's this guy who is not, um, he really was a curmudgeon. I mean, you know, he's, he was not inclined to be nice just to be nice. Uh, but he seemed to see something in me and that like I he was le- You're saying he was kind of leaning in to hear what you yeah, had to say. So yeah. like he, you, 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 in that moment, you felt smart. I yeah. did. <laughs> that was That's pretty such cool. a good feeling. Yeah. yeah. Smart enough to say something out loud in front of a whole bunch of people who I pretty much thought was smarter than me. So yeah, that was that was this weird little moment. Okay, so that makes moot the third part of it, which was why did you do it? Because you said it wasn't intentional, but you overcame it. And I, I was asking just because there, I bet there's so many students who struggle with that, and to see that you've overcome that, and you're in the classroom teaching yeah. in front of 10, 20, 30 people, could yeah. be something that students could aspire to. Absolutely, yeah. and I talk about that, and I require participation in my class, and I talk about this these stories as a way to get them to to kind of understand. And I am always willing to play these little games in the sense of if there's a student who's really shy and is afraid to speak up, we'll kind of plan something in advance so that they know what they're going to say in advance. But I ask the question as if, you know, it was just not planned. And then they raise their hand and answer it. And I've had, a, I mean, it, you know, mixed success. It works for some students, so it doesn't work for others. But I've had students who end up just, it's like you can hardly shut them up at a certain point. Like they learn that nothing horrible is going to happen and they get much more comfortable. And I think that's such an important life skill. After teaching, I think you said 20 years, right? Actually, the first class I taught was in 95 when I was in grad school. So 25 years. Is that 25? Yeah. So do you, (laughs) is that something you actively keep going? I mean, you know, after all these years, you obviously remember this one moment when a professor did that Mm -hmm. to you. So you are still 25 years later thinking, here's a student that I might be able 
to, to change their life. Absolutely. If I could change all of their lives, that would be my, that would be their goal and my goal. And I think that a lot of it, I think a lot of times we think too short term, and this might be an American problem in general. We tend to think short term. What I love is the idea that 10 years from now or 20 years from now, there'll be that kind, this kind of conversation, that kind of moment where they're like, oh, remember that thing that happened? You know, so my sense is that students, when they graduate, certainly they know um, about which professors have really impacted their lives. But I think a lot of it comes later. Um, there's a slow burn on some of this stuff. But that's why I love teaching. I, I, I love the light bulb moment. I love when they when students are willing to challenge themselves and, and do more than they strictly have to. It's great. Well, this has been such an interesting conversation. And I want to ask you like a thousand more questions, <laughs> but we're running out of time. So I do appreciate you being here today. It has been fun. I appreciate I appreciate being here. <laughs> This is the See Me Now Special Edition Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, with my co-host, David Ludlam. And we'll be back with some more Faculty Friday podcasts.